0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. It's uh, often called the parable of the tenants. That's going to be our text today. And as is our custom here, out of respect for the word of God, I'll ask you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's word today. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Give ear to the reading of the word of God. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, Once again, let's pray and ask God to to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you once again. We know that on our own, we can't really truly and rightly understand your word the way that we should, the way that you would have us to do so. And so we ask that you would soften our hearts, give us understanding, work in us by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and the ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, uh to kind of make sure everybody's up to speed on the context of what's been going on in these recent uh, passages in the last chapter. Um, Last time, or a couple weeks ago or so, we saw Jesus cleansing the temple. Remember, he he cursed the fig tree, uh, and then he went into the temple and cleansed the temple. He, you know, turned the table, flipped tables over, threw chairs over, uh, cast people out of the temple. It's hard for us to kind of appreciate the temple in, in general, but what this scene must have looked like. And so, in the previous text last week, back in Mark 11, verses 27 to 33, what happened there, you had the, 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 the Jewish religious leaders, the, basically the Sanhedrin, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, uh, coming to Jesus to ask him a question. They wanted to know, you know, what was the old saying, you know, who died and made you boss? They, they wanted to know what authority he had and where he got it from to walk into the temple and act like he owned the place. If they would have realized who he was, they wouldn't have had to ask the question about who. He did own the place. He was the lord of the temple and he had every right, but they didn't believe in him. And so they asked him, you know, well, how are you doing all this? Who's author- Who gave, it wasn't us. We didn't give you authority. How do you have the authority to do all these things? Well, it's because of that, that encounter with those uh, priests and scribes and elders uh, that we come to this text now in chapter 12. It's it's one of the it's in the same instance. Don't let the chapter division throw you off as if chapter 12 means you know totally different thing, totally different day. This is the same time in the temple, you know the same the same day, the same people as this are the people he's talking to. He's still talking to the chief priests and scribes and the elders there, and so. You know, Jesus had been doing all those things. He told them, you know, not only did he give them no answer to their question, right, because they refused to answer his question. He, he said, you know, I'll answer yours if you answer mine. And he asked them about John the Baptist's baptism. And they, were, and they knew what the answer was. And they knew no matter what they said, it would show them to be in the wrong. And so they refused to answer and they lied. They said, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither am I going to tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Because if they had answered his question, they would have had the answer to their own question. They would have realized, they would have been forced to uh, to acknowledge that he's the Messiah. And if they acknowledge he's the Messiah, that means he's the king. And they know exactly where where the Messiah got his authority from to do what he was doing in the temple. And he not only rebuked them by turning over tables and throwing people out, but he also said that, according to Isaiah 56, that God's house was supposed to be what? A house of prayer for all the nations, and yet they had turned it into a den of robbers. Well, we're going to see, as we saw then, back in verse 18 of the previous chapter, at that rebuke, they were seeking to destroy him. And so, you know, you might think it's an exaggeration for Jesus to say that they had turned the temple into a den of robbers. What do robbers do? They lie in wait? They commit violence against people to take their things? Well, what were they doing? They were lying in wait and seeking a way to kill Jesus Christ, he wasn't exaggerating at all. If anything, he was using a—he was speaking in lower language than what they were actually doing. Doesn't do it justice to call them robbers. They were far worse than than robbers. Well, that's that's the context of this parable that he gives here in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Now he talks about a vineyard. Now the imagery of Israel as God's vineyard is in the Old Testament. You might know it's in the book of Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 2. And listen to the similarities that you hear to this parable that Jesus tells. They're very uh, distinct parallels. He says this Isaiah 5, 1 to 2. Let me sing for my beloved my, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of stones. And planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out of that in it. and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. In other words, it yielded bad grapes. He did all this work to make this vineyard. He planted choice vines. And yet what did he get for all of this trouble? This owner of the vineyard, wild grapes. Anybody reading Isaiah back then would have known that he wasn't talking about those bad people out there, you know, the the Gentiles. He was talking about his own people, about Israel, the church in the Old Testament. The vineyard is a picture of Israel. And so it's the same picture that Jesus paints here in, in, in Mark, rather, Mark chapter 12. And I don't think that fact would be lost upon these people. You know, you might say that the common people in Israel that were in the temple, they might hear that Jesus' parable and and not know the background and not realize where he was pulling that from, that he was sort of alluding to Isaiah 5, which is very much a rebuke of the people of of Israel, of the leadership of Israel at the time. Uh, But the the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they would have known exactly what he was alluding to. They would have known this is not some new illustration or analogy from, from whole cloth, Um, But Jesus is, is pulling from Old Testament imagery in the book of Isaiah, as he often did. He just quoted Isaiah, didn't he, in the previous chapter when he talked about God's house being a house of prayer? Well, he's quoting from Isaiah or alluding to it again. In verse one, he says this, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now, the, the word tenant there, this is a difficult passage to translate in some ways. It's really the word farmer. But obviously, from the context, it's not a farmer that owns the farm. This is a, like a tenant farmer. It's somebody who was paid, you know, in a sense. They were, they were given the right to use the land, to work the land. But part of the produce, as their payment, had to go to the owner. That was his just due, Right. Now, one thing about parables, uh, there aren't that many of them in the Gospel of Mark. They're all through Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we have to be careful not to turn the parables of the Lord into full-blown allegories. What's an allegory? An allegory is something where every little detail of a story means something. That You're supposed to read something into practically every detail. When you read, for instance, The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis's well-beloved book, in a lot of ways, it's an allegory. Everything stands for something. You know. Well, the parables have a lot of detail that means something else, but not everything. And so we don't want to read too much or too little into what this parable is saying. Every, every detail in the parable isn't symbolic necessarily of something else. And we have to be careful not to stretch the parable beyond its intended purposes. Most parables had really one main point. We, we aren't to build our systematic theology from them, uh, we aren't supposed to be looking at this parable and trying to draw, you know, teaching on on uh, the uh, the free will of man and, and God not knowing the future or something. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all. And I think the context makes that plain. They're, they're analogies or comparisons of something. Uh, and again, they generally have one point. So let's try to make sure at least we get what that one point may be in our passage here this morning. Um, let's look at the main characters in the in this parable. Who is the owner? Verse nine. It's it, the word literally is the Lord of the vineyard. If that's a hint, um, who's the owner of the of the vineyard in this parable? It's a, it's God. The owner is God Himself. Um, he is the one. And notice notice some things about the owner of this uh, vineyard. Notice first of all the goodness and kindness of the of the vineyard owner of God Himself. Who, who planted the vineyard uh, you know, I'll tell you what I would have done I'm, I'm lazy by nature if I owned a property and somebody came to me and said hey uh, you know land wealthy landowner uh, pastor uh, I want to farm your land you have a nice piece of property there what I would say is okay go nuts you do everything I don't want to do, I don't want to lift a finger. Uh, i I just read books all day. I don't do physical labor. I'm not very good at it. Uh, you know you do it, and then when whatever you make, you give me my due portion or whatever the rent is. That's not what the owner of this of this vineyard did at all. who Who planted it? The owner. who put the fence around it for protection? The owner, who dug the pit for the wine press. He's doing all the hard parts, right? Who built the tower for it? The owner did. not the tenants, not the farmers. He prepared everything. He had provided everything ahead of time for them to do what they wanted to do, for them to, to bear fruit and to grow a crop. They were given every single thing they needed in order to produce a crop and bear fruit. There was no excuse for fruitlessness at all. There was no excuse for withholding from the owner of the vineyard his due portion. Not only the goodness of, of the owner of the vineyard or the or of God, but what about the patience? The patience shown by God and by, by the owner here in the parable. His patience toward his rebellious tenants, his rebellious people. What does he do? He sends them one servant and then another and then another. And it says, and many others. And then he sends his, his son as if that wasn't Look at verses 2 to 6. It says, When the season came, when it was time, when it was you know, the season to, to gather, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. You know, the fact that the parable goes past this, and the next verse doesn't say, you know, if it was us, the next verse would say, and he sent and destroyed those, those tenants. It's not what it says. It it, it could have rightly said that. But it's not what it says. It says, uh, again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another. And him they killed. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Those tenant farmers in the parable, who do they represent? Well, primarily they repre- as we see by the last verse, they represent these leaders, the leadership of the people of Israel. But the, it represents Israel. You know, think of it as a representative kind of situation. In pointing to them, the chief priests and scribes and elders, it's, it includes Israel in it. It includes the nation it's, itself in it. But it's mainly the religious leaders and rulers, and it's a picture of how they'd often rejected and mistreated and killed. The prophets that God had been sending to them throughout the Old Testament, throughout the history of your Old Testament. If you read your Old Testament, you know, pick pick a spot and start reading almost, other than the Psalms and things, it's a story of this exact thing. If you read the 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 books of Israel's history, think about I mean, you could you could pick one. Think of Moses off the top of your head. Think of a big one. Think of Moses. You know, leads the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. I mean, they had their cries had gone up to God, and God heard and said, you know, I've heard their cries, and I'm 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 here to to redeem them, deliver them from Israel, and I'm going to send you and you know Aaron and all these things. God miraculously saves them. And how long does it take before they're grumbling and wanting to go back? How long before they're grumbling against Moses? And Moses, you know, if you think of your Old Testament, of all the prophets in the Old Testament, Moses is numero uno. Moses is the prophet among the prophets in your entire Old Testament. They're all important, but Moses was Moses. And Christ, remember Deuteronomy 18, 15, Christ was going to be the prophet like Moses. Moses told them ahead of time, before, you know, not long before he died, God, the Lord is going to raise up for you, from among you, a prophet like me. Not just a prophet. A prophet like me. The prophet. To him, you must listen. Right? Well, Jesus is that prophet like Moses. Well, how did they treat Moses? Not much better than Jesus. They didn't get to kill him, but they tried. I mean, they, 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 they rebelled against him at every turn to the point where at times he complained to the Lord about them, like, how long do I have to put up with these people that you've given me? You know, and at one point God kind of threatens to start over. And, and we'll start over with you, Moses. And Moses graciously says, no, no, you know, but don't do that. You know, it would, it, would make you, it would make you look bad to do that. And God certainly didn't didn't do that. But this is, this is kind of a, a parable that is a summary of the way that the people treated the prophets all through the Old Testament. You know the prophets of old were those servants that were rejected, scourged, killed, and shamefully treated. And then what, is, what does it say that the owner finally sent his, his beloved son? What does that sound like? Jesus, God's, God's Son. That's a picture of Christ himself whom these leaders were presently, while he's telling the parable, plotting to kill. Again, he's not exaggerating in, in the slightest to them. Matthew Poole, the great commentator, writes that he points out, he says, 2 Chronicles 36.16, he says, this is what he says, is a compendious exposition of these verses, of this parable. In other words, He says, if you want to see a one-verse summary of this parable, although it's not about the parable, about what this parable is pointing back to, we are to look at 2nd Chronicles, there's a book you probably read all the time, right? 2nd Chronicles 36:16, and this is what that verse says. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them, to the fathers, by his messengers, because why? Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. God didn't send the prophets because he was being mean, he sent the prophets to warn them to turn them to repentance because he had compassion on them. And This is what it says. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. And what happened? Exile. The Babylonian captivity, the Assyrian captivity, the destruction of the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. It doesn't get much worse than that. You know, and and what happened in A.D. 70 when the Roman, uh, the Roman armies came in and did the exact same thing. It's 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 second verse same as the first, and for the same reasons. Think about it. He says they kept they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising whose words, his words. You know, it's one thing to despise a messenger, a pastor, or even even bigger, you know, a prophet of God, a true prophet of God. But you have to know that when you despise the words of an actual prophet, whose words are you really despising whose words were they despising? The writer of second chronicles tells us God's words. the prophet's job was thus saith the Lord if I can use the King James kind of you know language that's what a prophet is what a pastor is to do in preaching the word of God is thus saith the Lord. if I give you my opinions feel free to despise whatever I say but we we, we don't despise the word the word of God they scoffed they mocked all this until there was no remedy. The same thing is spoken in the New Testament by Jesus Christ Himself in Matthew 23 verses 37 to 39. Jesus says this, and it's in the same context as this parable actually. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have ga- how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers, his, gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Jesus, again, spoke those words, kind of shocking words, not long after he gave this parable in Matthew's parallel account in his gospel. Now, think about this. He mentions not just that they killed prophets, but that they stoned them. You know, and that's, that's such a foreign thing to us. What was stoning to the Israelites? It was capital punishment. They didn't just mistreat the prophets that God himself had sent with his words to his people. They treated them like murderers. They treated them as if they were blasphemers. Stoning was was the capital punishment of of Israel in the Old Testament. They treated God's messengers much as as a criminal and the same way they were going to treat Christ. How did Christ die? on a cross. Now that wasn't a Jewish form of, of execution, but it was the Roman form of capital punishment, the worst one. They treated him the same way, even worse than they treated the prophets. Now in the book of Acts, this is one of those things you see this over and over in scripture, in the book of Acts chapter 7, Stephen, right before he was martyred by being what? Stoned to death. This is what he says to the members of the Sanhedrin in the city of Jerusalem. He says this, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears you always resist the Holy Spirit and here it is as your fathers did so do you which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute they weren't building statues to prophets while they were living the prophets that is he says and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed And murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. You know what's he all saying? Like father, like son. He's saying "You're, you're just like your fathers. They mistreated and killed the prophets. And notice what he says the prophets did. Those who announced beforehand what the coming of the righteous one. Who's the righteous one? Jesus Christ, the one whom they had now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law, having the law wasn't the point. Receiving it and revering it, and it wasn't the point. You know, ha- having a Bible and treasuring it as a book, and having it on the top. When I was a kid, I had this weird superstition where I wouldn't put any other book on top of the Bible. I probably still don't do that. But as if that—that's what God, you know, just just keep it on the top. It might gather dust, but it's going to be on the top, gathering dust, right? Well, that's not the having it doesn't matter. Heeding it matters. Believing it, especially as it points us to Christ, is what matters and following it. It's a, it's a, you know, the, the picture of hardness of heart and unbelief here is kind of shocking if you really take the time to think about it and let it sink in. J.C. Ryle says this of this passage. There is no truth so little realized and believed as the desperate wickedness, that's Jeremiah 17:9. as the def- desperate wickedness of the human heart Let the parable before us this day be always reckoned among the standing proofs of it. Let us see in it what men and women can do in the full blaze of religious privileges in the midst of prophecies and miracles in the presence of the Son of God himself. The carnal mind is enmity against God. Sometimes I always say this, the old saying that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. You're so familiar with the Bible and that's a good thing but some parts of it should shock us and they don't i mean the fact that jesus christ himself is standing face to face with these people and and you know rebuking them for their unbelief and the whole time all they can think of is how they're going to kill him he's telling them in the parable i know exactly what you're thinking i know what you're going to do i know what you're planning to do he doesn't just name i mean he puts himself in the parable the son of the of the vineyard owner. Um, you know. If you want proof for the doctrine of the total depravity of man outside of Christ, you need no further look than Israel's rejection of Christ. Men can be, if you think about this, men and women can be outwardly moral and religious. They can be leaders in the church and yet be literally utterly blind to the things of God and haters of Jesus Christ. This isn't just some Old Testament thing. This happens every day there are people who go by the name pastor and elder and deacon and whatever else in all kinds of churches who literally hate Christ and are blind as a bat to the things of God and yet they're leading uh, leading people astray think about the sobering picture of the sure just judgment of God that we see in this parable you know after sending prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet and then finally his own beloved son all of those being scornfully rejected and sometimes killed. What does Jesus say the vineyard owner is going to do in verse 9? He's going to come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, we might read that and kind of be taken back by it and think, oh, wow, you know, w- what an awful picture. You know, I think we, we miss the patience of God. We, all we see is the judgment and think, oh, God's you know, this mean ogre you know, just wanting to smash everybody. How many prophets does he have to send? And have rejected, and then finally his own son before he finally gives his just judgment. I think the real wonder in this parable is how patient he was with them before sending judgment. He could have done it after one, he could have sent that first servant. I mean, in earthly terms, that's probably what would have happened. You know, you, you kill or mistreat one of his, his envoys, his amb- ambassadors, uh, the judgment's going to come, and that's not what, what God did. He was very patient with them. And finally, Jesus concludes the parable and brings home its lesson to the hearers. In verses 10 to 12, Mark writes this. Jesus says, still talking to these elders and chief priests and scribes, have you not read this scripture? Now, do you think they had read this scripture? Yes. He's saying, how could you possibly not know this? You've You've read the scripture. You've read Psalm 118. He knew they had read it. They knew he knew that they knew they had read it. I you want to put that. Like Yeah, I mean he's saying you, know, you should know this. This isn't something new. This was in the old this was in our scriptures in the Old Testament. He says, Have you not read this scripture? And here it is. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our in our eyes. That's Psalm one hundred eighteen. And then he says it says there, Mark writes, And they were seeking to arrest him you know, to seize him, uh, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. He's quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23. And, and but on the authority of Jesus Christ himself, what, what do we know that, that verse from that psalm, and really that psalm, to be about then? That psalm is a, is a prophecy of Israel's rejection of Christ himself. You know, close to a thousand years before it happened. I mean, think about that. Jesus says, you know, not only do I know what you're doing, not only do I know what you're planning on doing, but guess what? God's known this all along. This was part of God's plan from the beginning. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They, they tried to build God's house, their own version of God's house, without the cornerstone. They, they looked at this stone and said, no, this one doesn't fit. And God, God says, what? No, this is the cornerstone. This is the, the stone on which the entire structure depends. Without the cornerstone, there's no building. Those builders, who are the builders? The religious leaders of Israel. And then it says, well, whose doing was that? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You know, when you think of the meaning of the parable, I think that last line that's marvelous in our eyes. It's it's amazing to think about God's ways and dealings with Israel, with his people all through the Old Testament. This parable of the tenants as it's become, come to be known is, you, know, you could think about it in some sense as a like a mini history, uh, a miniaturized history of the people of Israel. Uh, Matthew Poole, that great commentator, says there that He uses kind of King James language. He says that that, uh, Christ here in that psalm, or in this parable, Christ foretelleth the reprobation of the Jews and the calling of the Gentiles. He's really foretelling uh, in this parable what was about to happen not long after. The founding of of the, the New Testament church made up of Jew and Gentile, everybody who... Believes in Matthew's parallel account of this parable in Matthew 21 verses 43 to 44. This is what this is what Jesus says in Matthew's account at the very end of the parable. He says, therefore, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This is speaking of the gospel going out to the Gentiles to the ends of the earth. It speaks of Jesus Christ and His church, which is made up again of, of Jews and Gentiles, everyone who believes. Like that's that's what this is dealing with. You know, a lot of what you see in the rest of the New Testament is springing right from this this kind of a truth. Now, there, there's some lessons that we should learn. I think it's you know with parables and things like this, especially when you read. You know, as as they knew, he spoke this parable against them. It's it's ironic. They got the point, sort of. Like they knew it was against them. That's all they cared about. They didn't take it to heart. They didn't repent. They doubled down on their wickedness and they're they're wanting to destroy him. But I think it's it's too easy for us to read a parable like this, especially given that we see it was directed towards specific people, the the bad people, um, and think that you know, and look at it as nothing more than a curiosity. You know, this is about something that happened. It doesn't really have anything to do with us. You know, we aren't there. We aren't the elders and chief priests and scribes. Uh, you know, we we see these as this this parable as teaching the reasons for God's rejection of Israel as a nation uh, for their unbelief and His establishing the church made up of Jew and Gentile mm-hmm. believers. Um, but doesn't this parable have something to say to us today as well? It's not just a theological curiosity. It's not just something to that we can, you know, trivial pursuit kind of a a thing, it has a lot to say about us as well. Have we not, as a nation, been blessed greatly by the goodness and kindness of God in more ways than we can possibly count? If you read our nation's history, sure there's lots of sins, lots of, of shortcomings and faults, lots of things to be repented of, but when you look at it from God's angle, what God has done for us in spite of all those things. How much has God blessed this land? You'd be hard-pressed to count how many blessings God has given. Now, I know that some will say, well, we aren't the nation of Israel. Well, no one said we were. No one should be saying we were. What does the scripture say in the Old Testament? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. It doesn't just say, blessed is the nation of Israel and no one else. It says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That's... That's, that applies to anyone. Where is the gospel to go? Matthew 28, the Great Commission: Go therefore and make disciples of all individuals. No, go make disciples of all the nations. That certainly includes individuals, but it means more than individuals. God still still treats nations as uh, in, in in certain ways, and he hasn't changed. You know, God judged the wicked nations in the world through his people when they took over the land of, of, of promise, the land of Canaan. If you remember reading through, you know, what does it say the reason was? For their sins had filled up. And sometimes he told them to wait. You know, that one's not time yet. It's going to be. Their sins are going to fill up and then you're going to go and I'm going to give you that land as well. Um, it, it's, it's both. God, God deals with nations just like he deals with individuals. The Lord blesses and judges nations and peoples. That's clear throughout scripture and that has not changed with turning the page to the New Testament. God has not changed. We shouldn't vainly imagine that our nation is beyond the judgment of Almighty God if we continue on in the ways of wickedness and unbelief. Has God not sent, similarly, his messengers, his servants throughout our land over the years, decades, and centuries? How many of those messengers went unheeded as people heaped up for themselves, as the New Testament talks about, teachers for their itching ears. You know, that we haven't really changed that much. You know, the Old Testament people flocked to false prophets. Remember what they called, I think it was Elijah, the troubler of Israel. Why? Cuz everybody else said stuff we wanted to hear. And the king was like, there's one more prophet, remember? And the king was like, oh, who is it? Oh, Elijah. And he's, "Oh, not Elijah. He never says anything good." You know, these guys all said happy stuff. Don't I don't want to hear Elijah again. Same, same thing, does that not happen today? Do we not think the same way? We like smooth sounding words, words that scratch our itching ears. You know, you think about it, that's, that's really a form of judgment too. When God allows these, these false shepherds to abound and people's hearts are hardened against the, the message of God's judgment and the call to repentance. You know, at times, just like in the Old Testament, there's a famine of the word of God. It's, it's not every, everywhere where you hear God's word taught plainly and truthfully and sincerely. Wicked leaders, not to get political, but is are wicked leaders not a judgment of God upon a people? They were in the Old Testament, and they certainly still are in a way today. And what, what do we do as a result? What do we do in response to all these things? Do we, does it stir us up to repentance? Does it stir us up as a people to cry out to God, for mercy, does it shake us from our slumber and stir us up to renewed repentance? You know, God has been just like in that parable. God has been patient, not just with Israel but with us as well. You know, He could ju- He could have judged a lot quicker. You know, God justly could have sent severe judgment upon us decades ago, and, and yet has not, not yet done so. So let, let us not be like the unbelieving who take His patience as as you know, as God not caring. Let us take it as as salvation, as a kindness of God and the opportunity to repent and turn back to Him. And possibly the really the most important thing in this parable and this whole text, again, think about the murder of the of the owner's son in the parable. Think about the rejection of the stone that he talks about from Psalm 118. Think about the infinite mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus going standing there in front of these men going repeatedly to Jerusalem back into the temple where he would go you know, that very week in the full knowledge and expectation of what was to come. You know, Think about Jesus telling this parable and saying "God had, you know, the owner had this one left, he had this one beloved son and he finally sent him, him they'll listen to, him they'll respect and him they killed. Jesus said those words knowing full well that he was saying those words about himself and what was surely to come in his crucifixion and death. It shows not only that he knew what was in the hearts of those Jewish religious leaders who, who rejected him, who intended to kill him, but it also shows that he went willingly there anyway to die and lay down his life for his sheep. That's really the main import of this parable. The cross of Christ is not mentioned by name, but it should jump off the page when we read this parable, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lord of glory, laid down his life to save us from our sins, knowingly and intentionally. No man took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord for our salvation. What a wonderful Savior that we serve in Jesus Christ. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we read these passages like this towards the end of Mark's Gospel, this parable, and, and we shudder to think of the hardness of heart and unbelief and wickedness in, in, in claiming to respect Moses and the prophets and yet rejecting all of them in many ways and treating them with scorn and even killing many of them and we, we have a hard time even imagining religious leaders of the day plotting to murder Jesus Christ your only son our Lord the Lord of glory the, the, the long awaited Messiah and we ask we, we shudder we, we pray that you would give us grace to, be, to not be hardened of heart that you would soften our hearts that you would grant us grace by your spirit to repent when you, when you show us our sins, either in the preaching of the word or in our reading of your scriptures, that you would work in us, move, move in our hearts by your spirit to grant us repentance and renewed faith. And uh, we ask that you would, you would give us grace as your church, as your people, to bear much fruit by abiding in Christ to the glory of his name. We give you praise and thanks that you are so good and kind and patient and long-suffering with your people and that you sent your only beloved son that we might have our sins paid for in full, and that we might have the righteousness of Christ accounted to us by faith, by your grace alone, that you made a way for sinners like us to be made right with you forever, for by sending him to take your just judgment for our sins upon himself. And we give you praise for sending us such a marvelous Savior. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his death, especially on behalf of us and for his resurrection on the third day for our justification. Thank you for loving sinners like us that much. And we ask that you would give us grace as your church and give our sister churches the same uh, grace that we might go out with the message of of the gospel and make disciples that you might uh, see much fruit and make your word to bear fruit here in Ramona. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.